a really quick and exciting announcement to make. The Menopause and Cancer podcast is now also on YouTube, and I'm so excited that more people now get to watch our conversations. So the link to the YouTube channel is in our show notes. Please go and subscribe to the channel so that more people who need to hear our conversations are able to find them. Thank you. Hi, I'm Danny Bennington and welcome to my podcast. This podcast is for anyone who's been affected by cancer and menopause. I'll be speaking to special guests and menopause experts to help us find solutions to our symptoms and of course address the greater picture. We're going to talk about everything from mental health to physical health, sexual health to bone health and everything in between. Nothing is off limits. Welcome. Hello everyone, I'm glad you're here. I'm trying to imagine what you do whilst you're listening to our weekly episodes, whether you're out on a walk, whether you walk your dog maybe, maybe you're doing the washing up, you're folding the laundry. I know I'll do all sorts of random things whilst I listen to my podcast and so it's always fun to imagine what you're up to. If you can ever be bothered, do drop me an email to danny at healthyholme.com and tell me what you do whilst you listen to our weekly episodes. I can then share that with everyone else. I think that would be quite a fun thing to do. Anyway, at the beginning of the year, I thought I'd pop into my menopause Facebook group, which is the Menopause and Cancer Chat Hub. It's a private community. There's over 500 people in here who are in menopause after a cancer diagnosis. And I thought I'd reignite the conversation with the symptoms that bother you most. And so I put in a poll, I said, hot flushes, cold flushes, night sweats, insomnia, vaginal dryness, vaginal pain or irritation, mood swings, weight gain, memory lapses, brain fog, depression, anxiety, panic disorder, irritability, fatigue, low sex drive, no sex drive tingling in your body, burning tongue and mouth, itchy skin, joint ache or joint pain, muscle aches, breast tenderness, bladder symptoms, headaches, food sensitivities, bloating, thinning hair, brittle nails, incontinence, dizzy spells, allergies, osteopenia and osteoporosis, heart palpitations, gum issues and a couple of people even added tinnitus, which I'd forgotten, and PTSD and mental health caused by surgery in menopause after cancer. And so the list is very long, and I wonder if you can guess what came out at the very top, because I thought it would be really good on the next few episodes over the next few months to address the most bothersome symptoms with different specialists, different doctors, and different points of view, so that we can all start to tackle our debilitating, very stubborn symptoms in different ways, because I know different things will resonate with different people and different experts are going to give us different strategies. I'm not sure if you're surprised, but hot flushes, insomnia, and brain fog, and anxiety, and low sex drive or no sex drive came out at the very, very top. Now, if you 
were one of the people who took part in the poll and low sex drive or no sex drive was something you ticked, then can I please remind you to go back to our previous podcast episodes and look for the two episodes I've recorded on sexual health, vaginal health, and also the fabulous Kate Moyle psychosexual therapist was on and we talked about sexual desire, intimacy. So maybe this is something you'd like to revisit when you find a little bit of time. On today's show, I've got the amazing Dr. Philippa Kay, and I just love her so much. And together, we're going to discuss hot flushes and brain fog, and I want her ideas and strategies on it so that we can all tackle those two a little bit better. Philippa is a London-based GP with a particular interest in women's sexual health. She's been a GP for over a decade in both the NHS and private sectors. She's given so much of her time to various of the charity projects I run. And she's also written several books and she's a regular broadcaster on radio and television. So you might see her beautiful, dark, curly head (laughs) on the telly. She's often on national television sharing her fantastic expertise. But Philippa has also got her own history with cancer, and I'm delighted she's happy to talk about her own cancer diagnosis and her own experience of menopause. And I hope that you will learn from the conversation with Philippa today that finding strategies and receiving help is never something that happens really quickly. Even when you're someone like Philippa, who's written a book about the menopause even, and who's got all the expertise that she has. Philippa's book is called The M Word, Everything You Need to Know About the Menopause, and the second edition is out really soon. And now it's time to welcome her in. I really hope you enjoy this conversation between me and Philippa. I'm delighted to be here with you, Philippa, today. Hello and welcome. Thank you for having me. We have spoken on numerous occasions for our Trekstock community, and you've always given your time and your support and your expertise. And I'm so grateful for what you do. So thank you, first of all. (laughs) It's more than fine. I think that charities like Trekstock do an astounding job. And as a someone who was a young adult with cancer I think that's really isolating and I remember going to hospital appointments and being the youngest person there and physio the youngest person there and I was always the youngest person there and Mm. so to be with other young adults is really important and empowering. Yes thank you. Before I ask you about your own story and journey and uh, your dance with cancer, I want to ask you, you're a GP and you have this huge interest in women's health, sexual health, and you've got decades of experience. If I come to you as a GP, I know I'd be in good hands with my questions about menopause after cancer, but not everyone has a GP like you. Tell me a little bit about how we can navigate this access So someone's got ideas about, I need to address my menopause. I've got a history with cancer. I've got no one at the hospital maybe anymore. I need to go to my GP. Where do I start? I think that first of all, the doctors and health systems need to also be better at recognizing the needs of cancer patients outside of treating your cancer. And I remember very clearly that, that menopause wasn't mentioned to me. 
so I think that we need to be better at looking at cancer patients holistically into all aspects of their lives. And actually, GP is often the best place to do that because I know your family and I know what job you do and I know where you live and I'm really nosy. That's why I'm a GP. And so we're often in a, in a good position to do that. I think that most of us don't work in single handed practices anymore, that you will be in a group practice where there will be lots of doctors and your GP receptionist is not the dragon that everybody thinks that they are. They are trying to ensure that you see the right person for you. And then when they ask you what's it about, they're not trying to be nosy. They are literally trying to point you in the right direction, because if you come to me for a joint injection, I cannot do them. But if you come to me for women's health or sexual health or general health, obviously I can. And vice versa with the guy that does the joint injections. So ask who is the person in the practice that has an interest in women's health? Who is the person that might have extra qualifications? I have two extra diplomas. Who is the person? And if they say no one. OK, so who is the person that does most of it. Who is the person that does the coil fittings or the menopause consultations? And generally, there will be somebody that does. If you go and see somebody, I would also go armed, not because there's going to be a battle, but because it just helps us all understand that we're on the same team. So if you come and you have already tracked your symptoms and you're able to present that in a way, bearing in mind that although we have 10 minutes, what does that mean? It probably means eight minutes. And that includes writing, writing the notes and doing the prescription. And we're already running late because someone was really sick and you've got the stress of coming to talk to your doctor. And we know that that's stressful. So write it down. Write down what's been happening to you so that you don't walk out the door and, and put your hand on the door and go, oh, but also I've got palpitations. And um, mm. so having a symptom tracker is useful. And then you can also look up lots of info. There's lots of information, not just in my book, The M Word, but in various places like the Balance app um, so that you can say, actually, I know that HRT is an option for me or I know it isn't an option for me or I don't want it but I know there's other things out there let's talk about them and if somebody comes to my surgery and they're clutching a piece of paper and I don't know what's on the piece of paper well then I'm going to look it up and then we can have a conversation about it and that's okay because no doctor can know everything all the time and often you'll be able to say actually that website is from an influencer who's trying to sell you a supplement that has no evidence base for it or well actually you've got that from patient information uk or from i don't know trexoc or wherever and that source of information is good let's let's talk about it so i think that there are things that you can do and if you aren't happy at the end, go back. Let's talk mm. again. Or who else can you see in the practice? Or you can ask to be referred to a menopause clinic. The waits are long, but they exist. Yes. And I think that's probably a key takeaway because it's January now we're recording this perhaps by the time the session gets aired, people might listen to this in February. It's often a time where people want to reignite um, addressing some of the symptoms they couldn't get rid of in the past year. And so this is a good time to talk about that. And I always feel there is no destination to once you're in menopause after a cancer diagnosis. It's ongoing, isn't it? Yeah. And so we mustn't be put off by perhaps one doctor's appointment that didn't get us a step further. Often it requires two or three or four 
to even start a plan. And maybe those expectations are realistic. And then even when you're on a treatment, there is no one size fits all. Think Mm. about how many times your doctor might have fiddled the dose of your chemo or fiddled Mm. the dose of something or given you another medicine to counteract a side effect and and things changed and were tweaked because you are individual. And the same is true for your menopause journey. And it may be that at some point we consider contraception and another point we don't need to consider contraception. And it may be that during the perimenopause, you might need one thing and during the menopause, you might need another. And what your symptoms are in years one and two versus in year 10 are very different so it's important to keep knowing your body looking and sort of assessing your symptoms tracking your symptoms so that we can work out what you need right now and what you need right now wasn't the same as 20 years ago and might not be the same 20 time yeah and it might not be the same that you need by the end of the year because we change and so much changes doesn't it one thing that we often talk about in the community is that the menopause after a cancer diagnosis in general isn't discussed enough. People often feel that they ask, um, perhaps even their oncologist, as they're put on maybe endocrine treatment. They want to know more, but there is reluctance in information or people feel they're being given a tablet and then don't know much else. How do we navigate that with our GPs when perhaps the, the people who give us our care at hospitals don't address it enough. We often feel and it's not important enough. So it's like, it's that stubborn side effect that no one talks about, the one we almost have to put up with. So I think it's very difficult. And I think that the role of an oncologist, a clinical oncologist, a medical oncologist, the role of your surgeon and the role of your GP, they're very different things. And if you have a hip replacement, you would see your surgeon before you would have some imaging, you would have the hip replacement, and then the surgeon would come and see you on the ward, but really it's the physios and the nurses looking after you at that point, and then they would discharge you and they'd probably see you six weeks later, but actually the work of recovery you're doing at home, and the complications or the long-term effects and pain management, your GP is dealing with those things, not the surgeon, and so this is the same, and Mm. so oncologists are dealing with the treatment of your cancer, And there are side effects that come with the treatment of your cancer. And I think that it's not just that it's not discussed as much as it should be, though I think it should be discussed more. But I also think that we're not able to hear it, that we're not in a position to Mm -hmm. think about living the rest of our lives with the impact of our cancer treatment or living the rest of our lives with cancer. Because at that time, when you are in treatment, that's all that there is. Yeah, And we try really hard to hang on to everything else, right? But what we think about is getting through this. When my chemo Mm. ends, when my radio ends, when my scan is normal, when, 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 right? Mm. Absolutely. Also not thinking about how do I manage living with because we are in. So I think that we need to be talking about it much more because the journey of living with or living after starts during that's really hard for all of us both healthcare professionals and patients and so I think that's why we need to be talking about it far far more and we need to be doing much more research into cancer survivorship because more of us are going 
is surviving cancer and living with cancer than ever. And if we take something like breast cancer, we know about issues like lymphedema and premature menopause or menopause, but also about fatigue and mental health issues and osteoporosis related to medications and actually we need to do a lot more research into what it is like to live after and for me I don't have as much bowel as I did you know and the impact of that after and so I think that we need to do more research and the research then needs to guide what else that we can do and medicine and science is huge and all of us are asking for more research and I'm not saying that we should take money from anywhere else at all, um, but there is definitely a lot more work to be done. What I say to patients is this always, if it bothers you, it bothers me. And so whether or not you think that you have been heard before, whether or not you know there is an answer or don't know there is an answer, there is something that is bothering you, come bother us. Mm, thank you so much. I think this time lag in when we're receptive to receive information, when we want information, might not be the right time to actually need it. And sometimes we wake up after two years, three years in sort of the haze has lifted after actual treatment finished. And the expectation is that all your symptoms might have disappeared and you suddenly still got hot flushes and joint ache and they're not shifting. And our friends think it's over. And our families yes. over, but actually that first year after you're told it's clear and you go from seeing your oncologist every week to, to you know, and sometimes you know, I think, oh gosh, I was probably saw the nurse three times a week at some point. Um, and then you go three months, six months, it's like falling off a cliff. You're like, oh my God, I don't want to see you, but if I don't see you, I'm not safe. And everybody else thinks it's done. You're better yeah. now. You're different now. Yeah. And I think there needs to be a greater understanding of that in the wider community, but also for us, that as we accept that cancer is something that happened to us, and that process is difficult and hard and long, that we have to learn to deal with the consequences of that cancer, and that takes time too. Yeah. And it brings so much confusion with it because I speak to women all the time who say, I'm so worried that my night sweats or hot flushes are a symptom or a sign that my cancer might be back. My joint ache, I'm so worried that my cancer might have spread. And so unless we share our worries with someone, like you say, a GP who, who's a great starting point, we're going to sit alone with that worry. And the symptoms mm. of secondary cancer are often often vague but often could be related to lots of other things as well yeah. um, and we need to strike the balance between checking and tuning into ourselves and knowing ourselves but also the anxiety of doing that too much and for some people actually it's the anxiety around the cancer coming back that needs to be treated as opposed to another symptom and maybe we need talking therapy or maybe we need something else so I think that that for every person that balance will be will be very different um, but I think that we definitely need need more research and input and talking in general about cancer survivorship. Yeah. And menopause after cancer is just that. It's surviving cancer with a long-term side effect. And I'm glad we're talking about it. When were you diagnosed and what cancer was that? Well, I was diagnosed in May 2019 with bowel cancer. I consider myself a very, very lucky pickup. I had 
had three cesarean sections. I'd had an ectopic pregnancy. I'd had my appendix out. Basically, my belly had been, my pelvis had been cut open five times. And I had a little bit of niggling pain from when my youngest was born. And I thought, well, you've got a lot of scar tissue there. No, but okay. And she was three and a half. And then I noticed that the pain was a little bit worse. And I went to the GP and she said, you've got a lot of scar tissue there. Let's do an ultrasound scan. Um, we shouldn't show anything. And I was went to a gynecologist and when he examined me, he said, oh, you've got a lot of scar tissue there. And I wonder if that's stuck to your bowel. I wonder if your womb is stuck to your bowel. So I'm going to need to have a bowel surgeon there when we go and try and break up some of that scar tissue. And the bowel surgeon said, let's just check. Let's just check. There's nothing else going on. And I remember being really annoyed that I had to take a day off work to do bowel prep for a colonoscopy. It's not very pleasant. And I remember sitting there thinking, I'm going through this procedure and they're not going to find anything and I'm going to have to have surgery anyway. And they pushed the slight sedation and he put the scope in and I looked at the screen and there was my cancer. And I looked at the surgeon and his eyes came up to meet mine and I knew. And in that moment, my world changed absolutely forever and I had stage two bowel cancer I had a low anterior resection so I had part of my bowel removed very low down and part of my rectum I then had six seven months of chemotherapy via a port and then they said we'll just do a scan everything will be fine and everything was not fine and they found more lesions and I had surgery in the pandemic and then I had a huge surgery in the pandemic um, where they removed more bowel, large bowel and small bowel and I had chemo inserted directly into my abdomen and that was 15 days in hospital on my own in the pandemic, 10 days of which were in ICU Um, and at that point they said cancer free. Now during this whole time I had been on the pill and I wanted to have contraception and they said to me during chemotherapy, do you want to have any more children? Because the chemotherapy might affect your ovaries. And I said, thank you very much. I've got three. We're okay. And then nothing was mentioned ever again. And it was probably, I don't even know, 2021. So two years or so after my diagnosis that I started to I noticed that I had been sweating through the night since my surgery, since since my second surgery. So after the chemo and I was tired and I had joint pains and I put it all down to recovering after these surgeries and chemotherapy and blah, blah, blah. And I was being investigated for something else. And the specialist said to me, yes, you're on the pill, but in all likelihood, she means she just dropped it. In all likelihood, you have gone through a premature menopause. And I said, but I'm on the pill and the pill works as HRT. And she said, well, it does, but it's synthetic. And although it's higher doses, it doesn't agree with everybody. Maybe you should start HRT. And I thought about it. And then I had to have a scan. And the scan, the person doing the sonography said, Oh, well, yeah, they're those shriveled up ovaries. Yeah, definitely. Post- oh. And I sort of and, and I turned and looked and I and I can vaguely read these things. Um, it's been a while since I did them, did them. But, you know, I can vaguely read them. And I thought, oh, God, I'm not sure I really wanted to hear shriveled up postmenopause. 
And then I thought, well, okay, this is how this is where we are, irrespective of whether or not the pill is supposed to be enough estrogen to protect me against osteoporosis and everything else. It's not enough to manage my symptoms. And so I was swapped on to a patch, which is not a synthetic HRT. It is body identical HRT. And it took a while to fiddle the dosage because like most people who have a premature menopause or a medically induced menopause you need higher doses than somebody who maybe goes through a natural menopause and I needed testosterone as well it took probably six months or so to find the right dosage for me at some point a doctor said maybe we should just come off it and just to see how long we need contraception for and I said to them well actually that's not going to work anyway because when you have a premature menopause that's medically induced from chemotherapy your fertility might return Um, and the younger you are the more common that is to happen but even if you we know that I'm menopausal now but we don't know that randomly in five years I might produce an egg and and so I came off it and within two weeks I was absolutely on my knees right and I was somebody I am somebody who 100% puts my head down and gets on and I lost the ability to do that and I just cried at everything (laughs) and and couldn't see my way out and knew this is because this has happened Mm. um and when I went back on within a couple of weeks the, the the never mind the relief um to feel myself again was was absolutely enormous but I think that I remember very clearly thinking cancer is just a gift that keeps on giving. And now, now you did this and now you, you, whether or not I wanted more children or even if I'd ever have children, there is still a loss because cancer took it from 10 years approximately of ovulation whether or not you're someone that likes periods or has terrible period pains or not it took it it wasn't yes. a choice. not the same as when you choose to go on the pill or the myrena coil or something else yeah and it took it from me and I felt that very much and I had to process that as as a loss and all of that takes time But I also appreciate that I had a non-hormonally driven cancer, which made some of my choices a lot easier. Before before we talk about that, Philippa, I've really thought what was so interesting, and I hope this is really reassuring for everyone at home who is listening. You've written a book, The M Word, the second edition is out soon. You are a GP with a super interest in women's health, and you're going through this yourself, and still... It didn't make a click immediately. No. You, it took time, months and years to realize your symptoms, to address them, to speak to someone, to have appointments. And it's normal. And Absolutely. people, I think, at home often think it's all going to, it, they should have acted quicker or they should have had help quicker. And what I want to say is even someone as knowledgeable as you with your own experience, sometimes things need time. There is a path a journey. I hate that word, but we're going down that road and it's one foot in front of the other, isn't it? Also that when you have chemotherapy in particular and probably radio as well, or actually any treatment, any surgery that, that you expect 
to have some kind of side effects. And so you assume that everything is chemo or everything, yeah. your fatigue must be radio or the fact that your bowels don't work must be because they removed some of it. Um, and so it takes time to work out which bit is which bit, essentially. Yeah. And I do feel... In some, I mean, the balance of being doctor and patient has is challenges in lots of ways. But I was able to say, I think, in a way which was very lucky to say, actually, yes, I know that the oral contraceptive pill works as HRT, but it's not working for me. And yeah. so that was helpful. But the other thing that I did find and that I wanted to mention was that you can be in a premature menopause. You can be in a menopause. And when you have chemotherapy or when you have surgery, they will always ask you to do a pregnancy test. And so on the one hand, you have been told that you cannot have any more children and that you are in a menopause and that is how it is now forever. And on the other hand, could you just check that you're not pregnant? And so there's this constant yeah. reminder of what is happening to you, even though you're going, well, I'm how can both of these things both be true? And they are both true. They are both true that they have to check that you're not pregnant. But it 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 definitely feels like a, a constant sort of slap. Just pee on this stick again. <laughs> we know that it, the likelihood is so tiny, but just please pee on this stick. Mm. I feel like it's the insult to your injury. And I felt insulted to my original injury. So if my original injury was the cancer, that has been insulted so many times, menopause being one of it, these questions and tests being another one, and they're little stabs and digs, aren't they? I would mm. say that cancer is like being punched in the face multiple times and you just get up and then you yes. say, punch me some more. And, and that's not to say that you want it or ask for it. I actually think that's a marker of people's strength in, in how they manage is that we don't have to go in skipping and laughing and jumping and we don't have to go in with a smile on our faces, but we went in anyway. And that is. Yes. Thank you for that. That's amazing to hear, actually. So, Philippa, with bowel cancer or with your particular bowel cancer, HRT was no issue is that with all bowel cancers or just with are there differences like breast cancers I know nothing about it so in general um, bowel cancer is not a hormonally driven cancer um, and when you don't have a hormonally driven cancer you can have hormone um, so that's different to breast cancer or maybe endometrial cancer womb cancer and so there are more options available to us but even if you've had bowel cancer, for example, I may still have had the BRCA gene. So I was tested for BRCA. I happen to have a different gene, not BRCA. So there still may be decisions that that, that you make or may not be appropriate for you, or you may not want it. And I think that, mm. that the menopause awareness is hugely important and is doing an amazing job. But the idea that HRT suits everybody and works for everybody and fixes everything is not correct. And I think that it's really important to remember that some people don't want it, and that's okay. Of the people who could have it, they don't want it, and that's okay. And even if you are on it, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't be doing all the lifestyle things and that you shouldn't be making taking other steps and other measures at the same time. So, yes, I am on it, but yes, I also don't drink caffeine and don't read don't drink alcohol and exercise five times a week and 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 
Yeah. Philippa, what I love so much about your book is there is no hierarchy in treatment options. And I really hear it in all your words. And from speaking to you, you write how you speak, which is why your book is so easy to digest, because it's like you're talking to me <laughs> through your words <laughs> on, on your pages. But there is no hierarchy in treatment options. You actually very much say it's a little bit of trial and error. We've got to start somewhere and let's give it a go. Come talk to me. When I did a recent poll in our Facebook group, um, I just asked, I said, it's January. What are your most stubborn symptoms at the moment? And this is not knowing what cancer people have been diagnosed with or what stages of menopause they're in. And hot flushes came out at the very top. So without bringing hierarchy into how we can treat hot flushes, where do we start if they become really bothersome, if they've been continuing to go on and if we just want to get rid of them? Mm. So I think there's what you can do and there's what I can do with you. Uh, yeah. so, so yes, I would say go to your GP, full stop. But what can you do whilst you're waiting for that appointment? It's not easy to get appointments. What should you, What could we be doing even when we've had that appointment? Some of it is not me teaching you to suck eggs, but simple things make a big difference to the extent of don't wear one big thick jumper, wear lots of layers. And that sounds ridiculous, but when you are standing in Tesco sweating from the hair on your head to the your sopping wet socks, if you've got one big thick jumper and a bra, you're less likely to take it off. So let's start very practical with things like that. Secondly, um, have a look at what you're eating and drinking. So caffeine, alcohol, smoking can all trigger flushes. And I'm not saying take away all the alcohol that you ever have ever saying just let's look let's look does that trigger for you maybe we could drink less it's going to decrease your breast cancer risk it's going to improve your health in general spicy food can often trigger flushes um, and so it might be changing that exercise and by I don't, I don't really like the word ex well I don't like the word sport but uh, exercise is a bit better but let's go for physical activity moving your body I don't care how you do it I really don't and please don't ask me to run a marathon I hate running I just care that you do it find something that you enjoy but also increase that sort of everyday activity bus stop one earlier walking your kids to school instead of driving them just moving 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 if you aren't somebody that exercises in general when you start that can trigger flushes but in time the evidence is clear that people who exercise regularly will have fewer flushes and sweats overall than people who don't so even if it triggers it in the beginning it will help in the long run. So those are things that you can do. And then you come and see me. HRT does work for hot flushes. Estrogen essentially says to your brain, calm down, you're not on fire. So the part of your brain um, that is involved in hot flushes and um, the temperature control area works within a very tight temperature range. So think about how unwell you feel when you have a fever and that's about a degree hotter than normal and how unwell you are when, when you have hypothermia and you get too cold. So the body exists in a very tight range, but actually it doesn't normally respond to minute fluctuations. 0.2.5 of a degree Celsius. But when you um, go through the perimenopause, menopause, the lack of that estrogen means that you can respond to tiny changes. You open a window, you move rooms, you have a drink, a cold drink, a hot drink, whatever it may be, and that your body then goes, I'm hot, and responds by opening all the blood vessels and you get this flush, this overpowering flush. I mean, um, and when I say sweat, 
I could wring out my nightwear, like literally wring it out with a mangle. Um, gross. And, and so <laughs> estrogen just says to your brain, no, you're not on fire. This was 0.2 of a degree Celsius. So HRT does work for flushes. If you can't have HRT, um, there are non-hormonal prescribable options that do work. Um, and those include antidepressants and anti-seizure medications. And that's not to say that I think that you have epilepsy or depression. These work for what we call the vasomotor symptoms of the menopause. With regards to herbal supplements and natural remedies. The word natural to me um, is difficult because people assume that it means safe and it yeah. doesn't because we've been getting medicines from plants for millennia. And if there's something in a plant that works, it means there's something in a plant that works and therefore could have side effects and harm. Um, so I would first of all check for the THR logo on the back, which means that you have what it says on the tin because otherwise it's not necessarily regulated. And there are various herbs like black cohosh, which has there hasn't really got good evidence for it. But sage potentially has better evidence for it. But we need to do a lot more research because there isn't enough now. You might find things like red clover. But if you've had a hormone sensitive cancer, they may still not be appropriate for you. And that might be because if there's something in them that works the way that we think they work, then they may work in a similar way to HRT, which we got from yams. So it's always really important that you check with your pharmacist or your doctor to check that it is suitable for you. If it is suitable for you and it works, whether or not there's an evidence base doesn't actually really matter. If it's not harming you and there isn't a risk for it and it works for you, then carry on. And then there are other things which are known to make a difference to patients with hot flushes and sweats. And those include things like cognitive behavioral therapy. So talking therapy. And that has a real impact. And people say, well, how can it possibly have an impact on how many flushes that I have? Um, and it does. And it helps you cope with them better. So even if we can't get rid of something entirely, if we find a way to manage it, then that can be really helpful. So I've gone from everything from not wearing a jumper all the way through medicines to talking therapy. So I hope that people can see that there is always something else out there that might work. And we're doing more research all the time. And I guess it's often a multi-pronged approach, because if I just stick to not wearing a thick jumper and layers, yeah. I'm just going to help myself a little bit. Yeah. But if I also um, start to move a little bit more, look at how I eat and maybe my alcohol intake, and if I also make the appointment with the GP, then I'm going to have five or six things that can perhaps support Absolutely. my hot flushes. And I think that often the hardest thing to do is to say, I need help. What do I do? Um, yes. And then once we're there, we're already in it together, right? We're already in there. We're already, we've, we've, we've started the plan by making the appointment in the first place. But anything that you can do that empowers yourself and makes you feel more in control because cancer comes for your control, right? It just makes everything go out the window. And even as something as simple as uh, I'm not going to work today, I'm going to pick my kids up from school was not a promise that I could make anymore because I never knew if that was the day I was going to get a fever and end up in hospital for neutropenia, you know, whatever it was. And so it yes. takes any semblance of control that you have. And so anything that you do, takes back some of that control. And I think that yeah. that's really powerful. 
And it actually removes control and puts in front of you this big bucket of um, uncertainty, isn't it? And that just becomes bigger and bigger and bigger. (laughs) Annoying, that is. With cognitive behaviour therapy, can you Mm. as a GP refer people for cognitive behaviour therapy or how can this be accessed? So there are various ways of accessing it. Yes, I can refer, but actually what would happen if you came to me, be it for flushes or be it for mood and anxiety and bearing in mind that often this is all closely related and linked is that we'll say here's the form you fill it in or go to the website you self-refer because we know that people who self-refer are actually more likely to engage um, Mm. with the process. There's also things that you can do online and there are various things um, or and apps which can help let's say that your issue is insomnia um, and you do headspace or calm and those will help with low mood and anxiety and you know learning I think all of us could learn do with learning some relaxation techniques and mindfulness techniques and getting yourself out of your head and into your body and so yes I can refer yes you can self-refer yes there are lots of resources online and apps the wait on the NHS is often not as quick as I would like it to be and demand is higher than ever Um, and it is also available privately and you may be able to get one-on-one as opposed to groups or even things going to charities and talking in group it's not the same as CBT but talking and um, can be really helpful so there's lots of ways of accessing talking yes yeah and just to be realistic here and give people some realistic expectations if I do all the things you mentioned the lifestyle the exercise the diet looking at my spicy food intake and I come to you and I ask for a prescription medicine that is non-hormonal let's say are you sure you can help can these antidepressants like you mentioned can all these do you actually have good success rate? Like I know you speak to so many, you treat so many patients. Do you feel confident that they can really help me with my hot flushes? Because so sometimes I feel people haven't got much faith. <laughs> they think if I can't have HRT, nothing's going to work. So it depends on what your symptom is and and you. But for example, SSRIs work for 20 to 50% of women who have flushes, whether or not they have depression and anxiety. Um, SNRIs, which is a different kind of antidepressant, work for 20 to 60%. Gabapentin, which is an anti-seizure medicine and pregabalin, they seem to reduce in about 50% of patients. Okay, okay. aren't one in 50 are helped by it. The numbers are good enough that the nice guidance... You know, the various, the British Menopause Society, various places will say, let's give it a go. Nothing is a guarantee. Nothing is a guarantee in medicine and in life and in medicine. But 50% is a good, is a good chance. Let's try. Absolutely. And, and even if one doesn't work, it doesn't mean that a different one isn't going to work. It takes a while. Like we said earlier, it all takes a little while for it to kick in. The other thing that came up is brain fog. And I have my own views on my own brain fog, which keeps coming and going. What would we do about brain fog? It can be so debilitating and it's not just not getting the word out. Like I'm often sat here recording a podcast thinking, I hope I remember her name, like (laughs) literally. (laughs) Um, But when it goes, when the words go, it's so embarrassing and it so puts you on the spot. But brain fog can be lack of concentration as well, can't it? Yeah, lack of memory, lack of concentration and difficulties with what we call executive function. So if you think about when you drive a car, you're doing about 20 things at the same time and you choose 
what to focus on. So when you're in an area that you don't know, you might choose to turn the radio off or you might say to the kids, just hang on, I'm looking for this road sign. Right. So you're making a choice as to what to focus on. And when your executive function isn't as good as it as it was, it can be difficult to choose what to focus on and what not to be distracted by and and how to process information. Um, and that can all be very difficult. What's in particularly difficult when it comes to menopause after cancer is that cancer treatment does it too. Um, so chemotherapy causes chemo, chemo brain, doesn't it? Yeah. And when you have had major surgery, you are using all your energy and processes to recover from that major surgery. And you might not be sleeping properly because of pain or because you're vomiting if your chemo side effects aren't well controlled or or because you're depressed and anxious and that insomnia then really really impacts memory and concentration I remember coming home after my first surgery and my middle kid had to write a family tree and I couldn't remember the name of my grandparents and I was devastated by that absolutely devastated by thinking how that I know their names Mm. they were an important part of my life how can I possibly be that I haven't had more than two hours sleep in 10 days and so it's really difficult to know when it comes to cancer and and brain fog which part is causing the brain fog and we know that in particular that breast cancer patients will talk about this this brain fog for a long time afterwards and again is that because of the menopause or is it because of other changes that happened related to the chemotherapy and so that's really difficult to say absolutely have your hrt or we'll all be fine because i don't mm. know the i don't know that um mm. and actually the evidence for using hrt in brain fog isn't quite as good as it is for in hot flushes or something else so i think that yes um HRT is an option. I also know that not drinking alcohol is important. I know that exercise is very good for clearing the mind and that it improves sleep and that sleep hygiene can improve sleep, which then improves your brain fog. Round and round we go, right? So it, this is not as simple as do X and you will get Y, that it will often take a lot of different techniques and a lot of things that people need to just change their behavior a little bit. So now I use a shopping list. I often forget to write things on the shopping list, but at least I had the shopping list. You know? um, <laughs> You're halfway there. Yeah. And so you, you, there are little behavioral techniques that, that you can use that can help. And I also think that I stand up and I deliver a lot of presentations and I'm in the media and sometimes you say, I had a little bit of a brain fart there, then you carry on. And you just acknowledge that and people are fine because everyone knows what it's like to lose your train of thought, whether or not it happens to them 20 times a day or once in a blue moon. Everyone's had that. And I think just sort of acknowledging that something is happening is very useful. And then you've deflected it. So then you've already taken away the, are they saying that that Danny forgot my name? Are they saying Danny can't present because she can't do X, Y and Z? And I've removed all that because I was the one that went, oh, I'm really sorry, you know, brain fog's still an issue and that sometimes I forget names. And then then people will just breeze past and move on. And this so is almost I, the cognitive behaviour therapy, isn't it? This is how they help you, or cognitive behaviour therapy can also help you rechange how you're experiencing the same situation because you've forgotten yeah. the name. 
Yes. It's how you perceive it is different. How we, how we perceive it and then how we manage it. But medication absolutely can be helpful as well. I just think that, for example, if you came to me and you had absolutely no sex drive, and the reason that you had no sex drive was not because sex hurts, not because your estrogen was low, not because your testosterone was low, but it's because you hate your partner. It doesn't matter what I do. I can't <laughs> fix it. Because the problem is not um, related to something that is in my control to fix. And so when we talk about brain fog, especially after cancer, when there are so many confounding factors that could be causing that, that means that is not as simple as HRT will definitely fix this or X medication will definitely fix that because I don't know that exactly. And I will always be honest with that about that. But if you can take it and it helps, marvellous. And if you can take something else and it helps, marvellous. And if it doesn't, well, then we need to think about what else it is that we can do. You know, one of the biggest things, and I've tinkered with this for so long, it's not sort of that I forget so many words, but for myself, it's very much a lack of concentration. So I've been an email, I do the first paragraph, and then I lose concentration and I'm on my phone. Or I check something else. I'm on Facebook, I'm on Instagram. And that's before I've even come to the end of an email. And it drives me absolutely mad. But it's this lack of ability to just finish through tasks. And so for a long time, I've been blaming my menopause and blaming my cancer, not blaming, but finding the answers to why my ability to concentrate has changed. And I now need to leave my phone in the kitchen. Yeah. So I think concentration is something, a lack of concentration is something which is affecting the entire population and our attention spans are much shorter and we're used to that dopamine hit of scroll on, scroll on, scroll on, 15, what used to be a minute is now 30 seconds, is now 15 seconds, is now three seconds. Um, And when my eldest son went to secondary school and he got a phone for the first time and we set up a phone contract that actually we signed as a family and, you know, leave your phone outside the bedroom and, you know, at night and whatever. But when he is at home, for example, it's the school holidays and I'm working, writing from home or in the evening, my kids see me write a lot and they will say, oh, mommy, I know that you need to pay for brownies or scouts or swimming. Can you just do it on your phone? And I'll say, my phone isn't here. Why? Yeah. You're standing writing. My phone is in airplane mode in another room because if yeah. I can't see it and I can't hear it, it doesn't call to me. <laughs> so yes. There are things that we can do to try and take back some of that control. And that isn't to belittle at all how devastating it can be to not be able to find something which you know. Yes. Um, but there are ways of managing that. Yeah. And I feel like removing my phone from my pocket has really helped in general with my ability to just be a bit more present with my thoughts and find the words or finish the email. And the other thing I do now sometimes, and there's probably nothing in science, I'm not even going to look for it. I have a really cold two second shower. I know people talk about cold immersion all the time, but I'm not talking about any of that. I sometimes just blitz it for a second and it's almost like I wash my brain. And I, I love wonder, it. I wonder if it's it's the um essentially it gets you completely into your body because yeah, it's just maybe. an overwhelming sensation, isn't it? But I think yeah. that actually you you lots of people will say that they run on the spot for 60 seconds, that they hold a wall squat for 60 seconds, that they get yeah. down and try and hold a plank for as long as they can hold a plank, and then they get up and they start again. Just anything that breaks and gets you into your body and out of the chaos in our minds. (laughs) I think so. I think so. 
Philippa, it's been so lovely to talk to you today. Thank you so much. Um, I hope anyone listening feels they can reignite maybe their contact with their GP, uh, reignite the conversation. If it bothers you, it bothers you as a doctor. I love that. Thank you for that empowerment. And um, good luck to anyone listening on your journeys in menopause after cancer. Good luck to you and me, Philippa. (laughs) (laughs) We're all on these paths together somehow. And it's so wonderful for you to share not just your personal, but also your professional, of course, expertise with us. And I can't wait to receive my new copy of The M Word because it's looking so beautiful. Whoever's done the cover, it's lovely. Thank you. So for anyone listening, The M Word, um, the second edition is available from the 12th of January, wherever you get your books. And I honestly really, really hope that it helps. I'm sure it does. Thank you so much, Philippa. Thank you. I've thoroughly enjoyed talking to Philippa. I hope you did too. I think she's amazing. What you couldn't see, because you're only obviously listening to the audio recording of this, is in the conversation with Philippa, we both had a tear in our eye when she spoke about all the things that cancer took from her. And I wanted to hone in on that a little bit more because, yes, we can talk about hot flushes and brain fog and all of the strategies we can do to help ourselves with managing these debilitating symptoms. But cancer takes a lot from each of us. And I know we've all had different diagnoses and we're on different paths in different stages of menopause. But dare I say, cancer took something from all of us and that loss is very difficult. Of course, we don't always know how to replace that loss. Sometimes cancer just throws something else in. Maybe more fear or more worry or more uncertainty. And so we feel like we're just being left with a deficit, with negativity. And I know it's our purpose somehow, and it's our duty almost to try and navigate that as best as we can out of the respect for ourselves. And I also know that's a really difficult journey and it requires effort and showing up for ourselves. But if you too felt that cancer took a lot from you, I don't have the tips and ideas of how we can each manage that, but sometimes just by recognizing it, perhaps by writing it down, by validating it, that can be a really first good start because otherwise we brush those negative feelings under the carpet. We try not let them flourish because we think we want to be positive and we want to look ahead and we want to just be constructive and positive about it all. But I know that's not possible. And so perhaps the first good point and start is to recognize the loss you might be feeling at the things that cancer took from you and to give it a valid feeling, a valid sensation. And I also hope that the tips Philippa shared with us on hot flushes and brain fog were really interesting and helpful for you. We're going to work through all the other symptoms as I bring my guests in on the next episodes over the next few months so that slowly 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 we're going to build up an amazing toolbox of things that we can do to help ourselves and with that I shall love you and leave you remember to email me to danny at healthyholme.com if you want to share with me what you're doing whilst you're listening to our weekly podcast episodes and take a glance over all of the previous episodes I think we've 
aired something like 30 episodes already or more even and have a look at if one of the other subjects is of interest to you maybe the sexual health one maybe the intimacy one yeah and just dive deep into your experiences of the menopause after your cancer diagnosis because like Philippa says the more we talk about it the better for all of us wishing you a great rest of your day